You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You've probably noticed in the corner of our living room those three birdhouse towers that swivel, the CD holders that sit off in one corner. One's about four feet tall, one's three feet tall, one's two and a half feet tall, and they look like little birdhouse uh, high-rises, and behind them are CDs, and they swivel around, and those were a woodworking project that I did a few years back, and then uh, some people came over, relatives, friends, and saw them sitting in the corner and wanted a set of their own, so they told me if you ever get ready to build another set, let me know how much they would cost, and um, I'd like to buy a set off of you, so I said, sure, and a couple winters went by, and I thought, well, I'll take this winter to do these projects. So I made five sets of those three towers, so 15 towers altogether. And I made enough so that I would have a couple sets that I could sell one on eBay and and uh, take one down to a furniture store and sell it on consignment or something like that, just a couple of extra sets more than demand. And uh, we finished up one of the sets, and I thought, well, I'll take it to a furniture store and sell it on consignment. So I heard of a furniture store in a, in a nearby town, different town than Sandpoint, that was uh, selling stuff on consignment, and I thought, I'll take it there and sell it there. So I went in and talked to the man, and he liked them and thought they were great and decided to put them on consignment there. So we set a price. I filled out all the paperwork, gave him my phone number, left them there, and, and walked away. Didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything. About a year went by. I'm a very patient individual, and I started thinking to myself, I should probably go out and check on the status of those birdhouses. <laughs> so I went out to the consignment store, and I walked into the store, and it was a totally different store. Whole new proprietor, all new stuff in there, merchandise for sale. And I walked around thinking, well, maybe there's a corner with my birdhouses sitting in them. I checked every corner under the cash register. They weren't anywhere to be found. So I asked the man who was who was running that particular store, I said, I'm looking for so-and-so. And he used to have a consignment store here right where this is at. And he said, oh, he's in the office right next door. They shut down the consignment store, and now he's running a different business there. Not good. So I walked next door and knocked on the door, went inside, and I said, you remember me? I came in about a year ago, put three birdhouse towers, CD holders on consignment in your store. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember you. Funny thing, he said, about a, about a month after you brought those things in for consignment, we uh, shut down the consignment end of the business, and I started this new thing, and I couldn't find your paperwork. So I just put it in uh, storage with some of my personal belongings and figured when you came in, I would give them back to you. And I said, well, Good, I would appreciate that. Can you bring him into the office next week? He said, sure, I'll do that. So I went in the following week, and he wasn't there. And while I was in his office, by the way, talking to him about this, my birdhouses, I noticed on the walls of his office all of these Bible verses pasted up on pieces of paper. They were apparently his memory verses. On his desk in his office was a Bible, and a very popular Christian book on uh, the purpose-driven life was sitting on his desk there. So I went in. A week later, he wasn't there, and I left the, the guy that owns the new shop next door to his office. I left him my name, phone number, and I said, have him call me, would you please? Never heard from him, never heard from him. About two weeks went by. I thought, I'll make another trip out there. So I went back out, uh, knocked on the door, and walked in. The, uh, the proprietor of the new business was there, and I said, I'm looking for so-and-so. Remember the guy that had the consignment store here? Oh, yeah, he said. About three weeks ago, he up and died of a heart attack. And I said, um, well, that's all very interesting and everything, but I had three birdhouse towers. 
that I had put on consignment here, and I'm wondering if you happen to know where those are at. And he said, were they the little swivel things, about four foot high? And I said, yeah, that, those were it. And he said, I remember seeing them in his office for a little bit. And he said, but after he died, they got sold at the estate sale. And then he looked down at my shirt, because I was wearing a polo shirt that had Kootenai Community Church embroidered right above the pocket. And he said, did you meet him through a church function? And I said, no, I didn't. I had no idea that he was even involved with any church other than the Bible verses I saw all over his office. And I said, was he a member of a local church? Yeah, he was. He was. Um, and told me which church it was that he went to. And then he kind of looked at me and said, but I got to tell you something. He was one of the biggest crooks I've ever met in my life. He said, for three weeks, people have been coming in here wanting their stuff that they put on consignment with him, wanting the money that he owed him. And this new business that he started was only a front group to get a big government grant that he was going to embezzle himself. And I said, well, so much for the Bible verses on his walls and the Bible on his desk. Apparently, he didn't let his quote-unquote belief affect his ethics or his integrity. And he said, you know, he said, I was a prison guard at a penitentiary in Colorado for X number of years. And he said, and I'll tell you something, every con man I have ever met or had any dealings with joined himself to a church. And he said, they do it because it lends credibility. People are more ready to trust them. And people will will give their stuff to somebody who belongs to a church. Every con man he's ever met joined himself to a church. Simon was just such a man, and Simon did just such a thing in Acts chapter 8. Turn to Acts chapter 8 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 8 is filled with marks of the sovereignty of God, His hand upon the spread of the gospel. And God's sovereign, gracious protection of the mission of the church in its early stages. Although the spread of the gospel was really started by the persecution of the church in Jerusalem and initiated by the death of Stephen, you see God's hand even working good from that evil. And then not only did God start the spread of the gospel outside of Jerusalem with the stoning of Stephen and the persecution of the church, but we also see how God protected the church from division and schism and racism by withholding the Spirit from the Samaritans until the apostles could come down and lay hands on the Samaritans. And that would do two things. It would demonstrate to the apostles that the Samaritans were indeed believers on the same basis as they were, that is, faith in Christ. And it would demonstrate to the Samaritans that they were part of the Jerusalem church under apostolic authority. And then we see in the episode of Simon how God protected the church from false teaching and running astray when Satan put his man on the scene in Samaria to try and overtake the work that Philip was doing there. Acts chapter 8, we're going to look at four things about Simon this morning. We're going to notice, first of all, his boast. Second, his belief. Third, his bid for the Spirit. And then fourth, the bondage that he was in. I want you to notice, first of all, Simon's boast. Beginning in chapter 8, verse 4, Luke tells us that Philip had gone down to Samaria and that he had preached Christ and the crowds were turning to him. And among the people who were turning to Philip's preaching and the message of the gospel in Samaria was a man named Simon introduced in verse 9. Luke says there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. 
But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. A man named Simon responds to the message of Peter, or sorry, Philip. And Simon was somebody who had for a long time practiced magic arts. He was a sorcerer. He was a magician. He used little sleight of hands, little spells, incantations, little magic tricks to astonish the people and to turn the people after them. And people will follow anybody who gives them anything sensational. People will follow anybody and they will seek after anybody who is able to perform for them a sign. Jesus was able to get crowds to follow Him, but they weren't following Him. They were after the signs. In John chapter 2, it says Jesus didn't commit Himself to them because He knew what was in man. And He knew that there were multitudes who followed after Him simply because He was a miracle worker, not because they saw any need for salvation. And Simon performed such magic. We're not talking about stage show magic, sleight of hand, smoke and mirrors type things. We're talking about genuine, satanically inspired, satanically empowered, demonic ability to work the miraculous. He was a sorcerer. He was a spellcaster. He was a magician. And for a long time, Simon had the people astonished and following after him. And it says that he was claiming to be somebody great. Simon had boasted himself of his abilities to work wonders, and he was claiming of himself to be somebody great. And he used his magic abilities to prove to the people, I am what I say that I am. And the people believed him. And the people said of him, this is the great power of God. Simon was the type of individual who loved a crowd. He loved to work a crowd. He loved to be up front. He loved the adulation. He loved the... The, the, the reputation that he got from his ability to perform signs. He had, he had the whole crowd worshiping, lauding, loving Simon. Multitudes had followed after him. And he performed a few tricks. And the people would say, this is the great power of God. Now that phrase means one of two things. Either it means that the people of Samaria believed that Simon did his wonders, his signs, by the power of God. That's the first thing it might mean. It might mean just that people said, this is the power of God. He's a messenger of God. And he's performing his signs and his wonders by God's power. If that's the case, then what Simon was claiming, when he claimed to be somebody great, was just simply that he was God's messenger. Maybe he was claiming to be a prophet. Or maybe he was claiming that he was God's spokesman and that he could show up and perform these miracles. And he said, you ought to listen to me because I speak for God. It may be that that's what they meant. But there might be something else that Simon meant when he claimed to be somebody great. And when the people said, this is the great power of God, it may be that the people thought he was God. And they were in essence saying, this is the power of God. And so they were worshiping Simon. And they were adoring him, thinking that he, as a miracle worker, had the ability to perform signs and that this was a demonstration that he was deity. In that case, Simon's claim to be somebody great was literally a claim to deity itself. I think that likely that's what's going on here. He was claiming deity. He was performing his little magic incantations and tricks. And the people went after it and said, this is the great power of God. He's God incarnate. There's some other things we learn about Simon from history. Justin Martyr, who lived around the year 100 A.D., about 70 years after this. Justin Martyr was a Samaritan. And he writes in his works about Simon, and he references a Samaritan Simon. And Justin Martyr says that this Samaritan Simon, quote, 
did mighty acts of magic so that he was considered a god and was worshipped by almost all Samaritans, and even by some in Rome who erected a statue in his honor. Irenaeus later on wrote that Simon was glorified by man as if he were a god, and he was the source of all sorts of heresies. In the early church, there was a heresy that cropped up really early on in the first century. It was known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the belief that matter is evil and spirit is good. And if spirit is good and matter is evil, then you cannot have the two intermingling or coming into contact with each other. So they denied the fact that Christ had become a man. So Christ to the Gnostic was just an emanation, an apparition, a representation of God. He was not God in human flesh. And the Apostle Paul in his book uh, to the Colossians, his letter to the Colossians, references the Gnostics. First John is written all to the Gnostics, and John affirms that every spirit that confesses that Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that denies that is of the Antichrist. He's talking about the Gnostics. You know where the Gnostics got their start? By the 3rd century A.D., it was widely believed, and Gnosticism was attributed to Simon. In fact, Harold O.J. Brown in his book, Heresies, writes this, The first two teachers to propagate Gnostic ideas within Christian circles were Simon and his successor, Meander. Unlike later and more famous representatives of Gnosticism, both Simon and Meander claimed divinity for themselves. Uh, Hippolytus, an early church father, 3rd century, writes that Simon, he writes a lot about Simon, and he writes that Simon was actually in Rome and that he allowed himself to be buried alive, claiming that he was going to rise again after three days. That was a promise that he never kept. That's how Simon died. Now, some of what's written about Simon may be romanticism, it might be exaggeration, but it does show this. He was able to perpetuate a heresy that went on for centuries after his death, still influences Christians today, and has led countless thousands to eternal perdition. That's Simon. Even after his encounter here with Philip and Peter, he went on and claimed divinity, allowed a statue to be erected to him in Rome, and claimed messiahship. That's Simon. Now, there's something distinct, a, a distinction that needs to be made between Simon's miracles and Philip's miracles. And the distinction goes along two lines. First of all, you have to understand the purpose of each person's miracles. Simon performed signs and miracles by the power of Satan for himself. He did it to exalt Simon. It was all about his reputation, all about his well-being, all about the crowds that followed after him. Those were the type of signs that he produced. It was about exalting Simon. Not so with Philip. Philip performed signs and performed miracles, but it wasn't about exalting Philip. It was about exalting Christ. And that is the purpose of signs throughout the Scriptures. It's never to point to the sign doer, the miracle worker. It's always to point to Christ and to His Word. And signs and wonders were performed in the New Testament and in the Old Testament to authenticate the messenger and to authenticate the message so that people could see this man does speak for God because he has the ability to perform genuine signs which only God can do. The purpose for Simon's miracles was to exalt himself. Philip's was to exalt Christ. You see, Philip, Stephen, and the rest of the apostles never saw the need to have these large stage shows filled with coliseums full of people and to do these miracles under bright lights and TV cameras. That's not how they did it. It wasn't about them and their Rolex and their nice flashy suits. It was about Christ. But not so with Simon. He drew people after himself, exalting himself. The second difference between Simon's miracles and Philip's miracles was the power that was behind them. 
Philip performed miracles by the power of Christ. It was Christ in Philip continuing to do what Christ had began, and that is to perform the miracles as an authentication of that messenger. Not so with Simon. It wasn't the power of God in Simon. People attributed Simon's miracle-working ability to God. We believe that that's the power of God, they said. So Simon must be God. And Satan doesn't care if you misattribute his miracles. Satan doesn't care if you mistake his signs for God's signs and attribute Satan's power to God. He's not concerned with that so long as he can use those signs to deceive people, which he did. And he used them to deceive people into idolatry, and that is worshiping Simon. Satan's fine if his people thought that was God. Fine with that. Attribute his miracles to God. Just don't worship the one true living God. Do you remember the magicians in Egypt? Moses? They performed miracles, didn't they? Aaron threw his rod down, it became a serpent. Magicians said, we can do that. They threw their rod down, it became a serpent. Moses turned water into blood. The Egyptian magicians said, we can do that. They turned water into blood. Moses called frogs up out of the Nile River onto the land of Egypt. The magicians said, we can do that. They called frogs up out of the Nile River onto the land of Egypt. They were able to duplicate those. But there was one, the miracle right after the frogs, the Egyptian magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't do that. They couldn't duplicate it. And that's what Philip finds himself seeing in Simon. Simon has come to Philip because he sees the signs. He sees Philip's ability to do what he cannot do. And so he gloms on to them. And Philip produced miracles by the hand of God in order to affect people's deliverance. Simon produced miracles by the power of Satan in order to bring people into bondage to worship him. That's the difference in the signs. Well, Philip, Simon sees something in Philip that he thinks he has to have. It's that ability to work signs. That's Simon's boast. He claims to be somebody great. And the people willingly followed after that. But there's something else I want you to notice. Notice Simon's belief. Verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now Simon believed. Simon was baptized, and Simon continued with Philip. That's three marks of a genuine believer, and Simon evidenced all three of them. He had a belief. He obeyed the Lord in following him in believer's baptism. He was baptized. And the third thing is he continued on with Philip. But Luke tells us why he continued on with Philip. He saw the signs and the miracles taking place, and he was continually amazed at that belief. But listen, everything in this story is a demonstration to us that Simon's belief did not save him. Simon was not a genuine believer. He was not born again, given new life, or converted. Why do I say that? Because it never says in the story that Simon ever received the Spirit when the Spirit was given to the Samaritans. He never received the Spirit. Second, you'll notice the things that Peter says about Simon. Later on, he says to Simon, your heart is not right with God. You need to repent of your wickedness, which is a call to salvation. And Peter says to him, you have no portion in the Holy Spirit. Why could Simon have no portion in the Holy Spirit? Because he was not a genuine believer. And Simon evidences that when the apostles finally show up on the scene. He manifests all of the outward trappings of believing, all of the outward demonstrations of true faith, but there is something missing inside, and that is the reality of a trust and a faith in Christ. And you say, but it says that he believed. You're right, it says he believed. But James says the demons believe and they tremble. There is a belief that does not save. There is a belief which is only a mental acquiescence to truth. 
There's a belief that is just a mental acknowledgement of certain true things. So that a person may say, I believe Jesus Christ died for me. I believe Jesus Christ rose again. And I believe that I'm saved by faith. A person may confess all of those things verbally and make a mental acknowledgement of truth, but never apprehend the truth. They may profess belief, but never possess belief. And Scripture does not use different words to describe those two different things. The demons believe, and they tremble. They know certain things, and they believe certain things. And that's where Simon was at. He believed certain things. He knew certain things, but he didn't tremble. He had never taken his belief and turned it into faith where he cast his entire hope for eternity on the work of Christ so that Simon could say, if Christ fails, I perish. That's faith. I have nothing to come to God with, and I'm going to cast all of my hope for heaven and eternal life on the person and the work of Christ. And if he fails to save me, then I perish. That's faith. Simon never had that. He believed. But it was a belief that was not accompanied with repentance. It was a mental acquiescence to truth that was not accompanied by a new heart, which only God can give. That's his belief. Third thing I want you to notice about Simon is his bid. You'll notice in verse 14 through 17 that the apostles come down, and we covered this last week. The apostles come down from Jerusalem because they hear that the Samaritans have received the Spirit but there's something missing. They come to Samaria in order to pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. So the Samaritans have believed and they've been baptized, but there's something about them that indicates to Philip that they have not received the Spirit. And the apostles hear about this, and the apostles come down. Now there was a good question that was asked after last week's message when we covered this issue of why God withheld the Spirit from the Samaritans. Somebody came up and asked me this question, and I want to pass it on to you and I want to answer it, because it's a good question. The question was this. How did Philip know that the Samaritans had not received the Spirit? How did the apostles know that the Samaritans had not received the Spirit? And after they prayed for them and laid hands on them, how did the apostles know that the Samaritans had received the Spirit? It's a good question. It doesn't tell us. But it's important to answer that question, at least possibly, because your charismatic brethren will answer it this way. They'll say, the giving of the Spirit is always accompanied by speaking in tongues and prophesying. So Philip obviously saw that these believers were saved, that they had been baptized, but they had not received the Spirit because they had not spoken tongues. And once the apostles came down, they laid hands on them, they received the Spirit, they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. That's how they would answer that question. Is it necessary to believe that? You'll notice that tongues are not mentioned anywhere in Acts chapter 8, don't you? It's not in the text. Listen, it's always dangerous to see something that's not there and base your theology upon it, something that's missing. Tongues is not mentioned in the text. So the question becomes, are there ways that we might discern whether or not somebody has the Spirit of God or not? Is there a way that Philip could have saw that? And the answer is yes. If the Samaritans had not received the Spirit of God, then think of what would be true of them. They would have no spiritual gift because every believer who is indwelt by the Spirit of God has a spiritual gift. Philip may have observed that these believers had been believed and baptized, but there was no spiritual capacity to serve. The Samaritans would not have had the discernment to discern between good and evil, between to be able to test the spirits. They wouldn't have had any understanding of spiritual things. They would have lacked any hunger for spiritual things like the Word and fellowship and prayer. They would have lacked consistent progression in holiness and sanctification, which the Spirit of God gives to us. They would have lacked all the signs that the Spirit of God is there. 
Like Romans 8, when Paul says that his spirit testifies with our spirit that they're the children of God. They would have lacked assurance. And what about the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. They would have been absent. There are multitudes of evidences of the Spirit of God in a person's life. And it would not have taken Philip long to look at this crowd of Samaritans who had been believed, who had believed and been baptized to say to himself, there's something missing that I've seen in Jerusalem. We see with other believers, but the Samaritans don't have it. Their faith is genuine. Their baptism was received. But these people are missing something key to their spiritual life. They're not growing in holiness. They don't have the spiritual gift. And they can't understand spiritual things. And Philip would have just said to himself, something's not right. And I don't think it would have taken him long to say, they haven't received the Spirit. Something's wrong. And so he sends and the apostles come down. And that's what happens in verse 14 to 17. But when the apostles show up, that's when Simon takes off the sheep's clothing. Look at verse 18, chapter 8. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Off comes the sheep's clothing. The apostles understand what Simon is after. He's not after the Spirit. He's after the power to manipulate the Spirit. And this may be the first time that the apostles really could see into his heart because they knew that out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. And they could see in Simon a reality. Simon was not a believer. And Simon exposed his motives to the apostles. They could see what it was that motivated him. And now it became obvious that Simon had come to Philip and he had believed and he had been baptized and he had followed with Philip, not out of an interest in Christ, not out of a love for the Word, not out of a need for salvation, but it was a professional interest. He saw the signs, and what motivated him was the ability to do what Philip was able to do. He saw in Philip a power that he didn't have, and he wanted it. And so he said, how much? How much for what? Give me that power. I want the ability to do that. I want the ability to lay my hands on people and have them receive that power. And if Simon could do that, man, he could wow the crowds. Because he could do all the signs that he had done before. And then he would have that additional ability to give the Spirit out to people. That's what he wants. As he hasn't received the Spirit. But it doesn't seem to dawn on him that as the Samaritans around him are receiving the Spirit, he's not. He's been left out of it. Now, if you've believed, quote-unquote, and you've been baptized, and you're standing there watching the apostles, and they're laying hands on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans are receiving the, the Spirit at the laying on of the apostles' hands, but you're left out of it, that might cause the normal man to pause a bit and say, what is it about me that I don't get the Spirit? Not Simon. He's not interested in the Spirit. He doesn't want the indwelling of the Spirit. What does he want? The ability to give out the Spirit. The ability to manipulate the Spirit for his own ends. And he evaluates Christianity in commercial terms. He sees it as something to be bought, something to be sold. You see, it was common practice in Simon's day for sorcerers to buy and sell their incantations, their spells, and their powers. They would buy and sell priesthoods to different religions. So Simon sees this new religion come in, quote-unquote, in the power of Christ, and he thinks he can just buy this like he has bought other powers from other magicians. And he treats the apostles as merchants through whom he can buy powers, spells, and incantations. 
Simon had done that his whole life. It was always a commercial enterprise with Simon. He was always after the money and his own self-grandizement. And now the apostles have come to town and he says, I'll pay for that. He hasn't got it at the apostles' hands, but he thinks, well, if I can't get it for free, I will buy this new power. So give me that power and I'll give you money. You name your price. And he evaluates it strictly in commercial terms. I want you to notice a couple of significant things at this juncture. First of all, sometimes it's difficult to discern who is a true believer and who is not a true believer. This man had believed. He'd been baptized. Philip had baptized him. And yet here he resides with the believers for this period of time and the apostles come down and it's not until the motives of his heart are revealed that everybody sees Simon for what he really is, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Simon has not changed one bit. Simon is still Simon. Simon is still in this for himself. He's in it for the money. He's in it for the the reputation and the power that he can have over people. Philip didn't see that right away. Sometimes it's difficult to discern between those who profess belief and those who possess belief. And people will join churches for all kinds of reasons, folks. It's a nice community place to come. It's raining on Sunday mornings. It's nice to be here. It's a good influence on my kids and my grandkids. My spouse makes me come. You fill in the blank. Simon came because he wanted something from Philip. He saw in something in Philip that he could get. He knew he could use it for his own ends. And so he joined himself to the Christian community and professed belief. He was baptized. And by all outward appearances, he looked like a believer until he took the sheep's clothing off. Second thing I want you to notice is that signs and wonders do not necessarily convert people. It's a wicked generation that seeks after a sign. And that generation has a poster boy. His name is Simon. He was after the signs. He was after the miracles. He was after the power. And signs do not necessarily convert people. In Simon's case, it only hardened his heart and it only inflamed his greed and his passion for more. They don't convert. That's his bid. The fourth thing I want you to notice about Simon is his bondage. Look down at verse 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. May your silver perish with you. Now, our English translations have cleaned that up a little bit. It's a pretty straightforward Greek phrase that Peter uses. It's pretty harsh what Peter says. Um, my version and all the other ones that I've checked that you might be holding in your lap kind of clean it up and make Peter sound like a proper English gentleman. May your silver perish with you. J.B. Phillips translates the phrase this way, to hell with you and your money. Oh, that's what Philip, that's what Peter is saying. You and your silver can go straight to eternal destruction in hell. Because you thought you could buy what can only be given by faith. You thought you could get with money what can only come by repentance and faith and believing. May your silver perish with you. And then Peter puts his finger right on Simon's heart. And he says in verse 21, You have no part or portion in this matter. What matter is that? He's not talking about the buying and the selling of powers. He's talking about the Spirit of God. You have no portion with Him. You don't belong to Christ. So the Spirit is not given to you. You have no portion in the Spirit because you have no portion in Christ. Verse 22, or verse 21, because his heart was not right before God. Simon had never repented and got his heart right with Christ. Had he believed? Oh yeah, he had made a mental assent to all of the facts that Philip had given to him. 
Was he baptized? Yeah, he'd followed the Lord in believer's baptism. He had clomped on to the Christian community and become part of that fellowship and followed after Philip. But Peter says, your heart was never right. So what does Peter prescribe? Repent of your wickedness, of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. If possible is not a conditional phrase referencing God's ability to forgive. It's always possible for God to forgive. But it is a conditional phrase referring to Simon's willingness to repent. Peter's essentially saying, you repent and pray to the Lord. You turn to Christ from your wickedness and pray to Him for forgiveness. But if He won't do that, forgiveness is impossible for Simon. Pray to the Lord that if possible, He may grant you forgiveness. Verse 23, Peter says, I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Simon was still in bondage to his sin. He had never been set free from his sin. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now, did Simon repent after all of that? (laughs) Peter said, Turn from your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Simon says, Will you pray for me that nothing of what you said will come upon me? What kind of a milk toast answer is that? Peter told him, Pray to the Lord. Confess your sin to the Lord and repent and turn toward God from your idolatry and your wickedness. And Simon says, will you pray for me? Simon never turned to the Lord. He never repented and prayed to the Lord for forgiveness. Simon was more interested in the the consequences and avoiding the consequences of his sin. How often does that describe us? Concerned that what might come upon us because of our sin. Simon's more concerned with avoiding his consequences than he is with forgiveness. He's not concerned that he has offended a holy God. He's not concerned that he has violated God's standards of righteousness by trying to buy and sell the Holy Spirit in his power. He's not concerned with any of that. What is he concerned with? Oh, that nothing of what you've said is going to come upon me. It's the temporal consequences. It's all about Simon. right? It's all about Simon. Just pray that nothing bad happens to me. Not concerned with the condition of his heart. Always has been about Simon. Always will be about Simon for Simon. It's all about him. And we learn three very important things from Simon. Let me give them to you. First, we learn that repentance and forgiveness are more important than avoiding consequences. How often are you sorrowful or repentant simply because you've been caught, not because you've violated God's law? How often is it that you and I are sorrowful or stop doing something simply because we want to avoid what might happen to us that's bad, not because it is sin and we hate sin and love God? Simon had never learned to love Christ more than his sin. And so he wouldn't repent. He wouldn't turn to God. And finally, when he was caught, when his heart was revealed and he was given the prescription for eternal life, he just simply continues in what he's doing and says, pray that nothing bad happens to me. He's more concerned with the consequences than he is about his relationship with the Lord. Friends, you and I ought to each check our hearts and make sure that when we repent, it's not because something bad might happen. It's because we have offended our God and violated His holiness and ruined the relationship that exists. That's what should concern us. Not just the bad things that might happen. Don't be deceived into thinking that just because you give something up because something bad might happen, that that equals repentance and forgiveness. It's not. Just because you give up beating your wife because she cooks and cleans better without black eyes does not mean that you've repented. You'd stop doing something because of what it benefits you. That's not repentance. 
Repentance is getting our hearts right with the Lord. That's what Peter puts his finger on. You need to turn to the Lord and repent. Simon just didn't get it. He's more concerned with the consequences. Second thing we learn from Simon is that you and I cannot receive God's blessing on our terms. We cannot receive God's blessing on our terms. How often do we come to the Lord and we want a blessing and so we barter with the Lord? Lord, you give me this or you do that and I'll go this far. I'll give you this much if you make up the rest. I'll do this if you come in and and show yourself mighty here. You think you can bargain with the Lord? You think he's some spiritual vending machine where you walk up and pick your blessing and put in your contribution and it pops out at the bottom and it's all yours? God is not a spiritual vending machine. He's God. We don't get salvation on our terms. We don't get any of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ on our terms. We're not adopted on our terms. We're not chosen on our terms. We're not regenerated on our terms. Nothing that we have that is of spiritual value of eternal worth comes to us on our terms. It's always on his terms. And Simon was trying to get something by his terms, financial, that can only come on God's terms, spiritual. What Simon needed to do was not project a bid for the Spirit. What Simon needed to do was repent and trust in Christ and turn from his sin and confess to the Lord and pray that the Lord would forgive him. And he would have received forgiveness. But he tries to get something on his own terms rather than God's terms. And that's not how we deal with God. We don't receive his blessings on our terms. We receive them on his terms. The third thing we learn from Simon is that you and I cannot buy what is only received by faith. We cannot buy what can only be received by faith. A lot of people treat heaven the way Simon treated the Holy Spirit. They think that their good deeds, their acts of righteousness are going to be waiting for them at the gates of heaven and they're going to be able to barter entrance into heaven by saying, well, Lord, look at all of the good things that I've done. That's not how heaven is attained. Heaven is not attained by buying righteousness with your good deeds. It's attained on God's terms, faith in Jesus Christ. You and I cannot buy from God, be it the power of the Spirit or salvation, what can only be received by faith, by believing in Christ and understanding that He has done all of the work. What He did on the cross is sufficient to cover my sins, and He is my only hope for eternal life. And so I ask you, you're sitting here this morning hoping that you're going to be able to buy heaven with your good deeds and your acts of righteousness? If you are, then I would ask you to do this. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord and ask Him for forgiveness and trust in Christ and receive by faith what cannot be gotten as a commodity. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us and for salvation in Christ. And thank you for this vivid illustration that causes us to to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. Forgive us, Father, for thinking that we can barter with you, that we can buy what you give freely, or that we can earn what can only be given by faith. And we thank you, God, that you've provided for all of our work and all of our righteousness in Christ. And we thank you in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.